just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Clary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under 80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. 
and we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story, and... Yeah, that's what we've got going on. Some spooky stories for you to listen to with some cool, snary drums going on in the background. And, yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. And if you are lucky enough at the very beginning of October, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and there is also going to be a second H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing. Check us out on there. Dave's got some stuff going on on that. I'm going to have some stuff going on on that. And also, I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Taza Chocolate, Stone Ground Chocolate. And you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy, they have dairy-free chocolates. They, they, they use dairy alternatives, uh, minimally processed, of course, organic. I love them. You love them. Toss of chocolates. They, they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? I don't know, sit down with a nice warm beverage. We've got the tea that you can get. We've got the coffee you can get. I don't know, maybe microwave some psychedelic water, baby. Ghostly horror stories. The Sixth Tree by Edith Lichty Stewart. Police headquarters, Los Angeles, California. Gentlemen, the coroner's inquest held over the mutilated body of Professor Carhart to account for the baffling circumstances surrounding his death gave the verdict, met death at the claws and teeth of some wild beast, presumably a mountain lion. Considering the prominent and honorary positions held by the professor in some of our foremost universities, I felt justified in suppressing the astounding diary, herewith enclosed, found by me in the dead man's room after the inquest. I submit the diary without comment. Any conclusion derived from its perusal can be only too ghastly and unbelievable. Respectfully, J. Donahue, Operative. July 10th. As we entered the canyon, that dreaded sensation of oppression and suffocation surged upon me, and I tore away my collar and lifted the hat from my throbbing head. There are hypocrites who prate vapidly of the exaltation and exhilaration inspired in the human by these same mountains. Liars. Who should know more of mountains than I, who for 30 years have studied them, chipped away at their exteriors, articulated every rock and stratum in their towering frames, explored and explained their very entrails? Why, I have even proved to myself that they possess a soul, or souls, personality, malignant human emotions. God, what I have suffered! Is it in revenge for my exhaustive knowledge of them that they torture me so? When night comes, it is night now, they shake from their torpor and become monstrosities, crowding closer and closer, stooping to compress the air about my fevered head, crushing into my brain. It is only by ignoring them that I gain relief, so I am writing now in a frenzy to escape them. As I said, we had entered the canyon. They were only the stage driver and I. I had been dismissed from the university, with only the explanation that my course of study was becoming erratic. 
Why had I selected the little lodge at the source of this rugged ravine for my retreat? It should have been the last place in the world for me to seek rest. Yet I was here. The gray road twisted its dusty way into the gathering dusk of the mountains. The stage driver essayed a few conversational stupidities, but I soon silenced his chatter. He looked at me askance and whipped up the horses. The trail turned abruptly. The door behind was closed. Mountains reared about me on either side, and a feeling of panic assailed me. I was indeed in the enemy's territory. An hour passed in silence. Suddenly a bend in the road interrupted the monotony of the scene. With what emotions I beheld a cabin, an adobe cabin, crouched back from the road against the hill. Five, no, six gaunt trees that might once have been willows stood in a ghostly row before it. Its windows, glassless and shadeless like the lidless eyes of a skull, leered and peered down at us. A glance had seared it on my mind, and then we had passed it. What place was that? The driver lashed his horses to greater speed. A good place to keep away from after dark. I waited impatiently for him to volunteer further information, but the fool was evidently sulky. I would wheedle. My good man, your reply only arouses my curiosity. He slowed down. The road lay straight. Turning, I could see the haggard eyes of the house as it watched for the effect the driver's tail would have upon me. It seems that some years before, after a heavy rain, some hikers had found in front of the deserted cabin five shallow graves, one beneath each tree. Each grave had contained a man. Investigation had identified them as a group of sheep herders, rough customers at the best. They had evidently spent the night in the cabin, for the place was littered with empty bottles, cards, and poker chips. Who had committed the wholesale murder and buried the bodies was never discovered. Rumor had it that the five sheep herders had located a mine back in the mountains and had hired a geologist to go with them to assay the ore, but this was never substantiated. There was no one who had actually seen the geologist or knew much about the mine. Where are the bodies now? The driver shrugged. Nobody claimed them, so they were thrown back into their graves, the dirt shoveled in again, and left till the judgment day. Well, if they are dead and disposed of till the day of judgment, why are you afraid of this place? I asked with some scorn. He shook his head darkly. There's six trees, and only five have graves under them. Well, they say there's a curse on this place until the sixth tree has a dead man too. Bah, I cried, nursery tales. But I must have spoken strangely, for his long whip curled out over the horses' heads, and we swung around the last bend. No longer was the cabin visible, but I knew I would return. It must have been midnight as I approached the cabin, a midnight that held its breath and waited for something. A hush of expectancy had stilled every sound of the night. I stepped over the graves. One, two, three, four, five. There was no wind, and yet I'm sure I heard a rustle, or better, the faint creaking in the naked branches of the sixth tree as I passed beneath it. Suddenly I halted. My heart swelled and burst into a volley of stifled beatings. There could be no illusion. A wan, lurid glow slowly grew from the surrounding darkness. There was a light within the cabin. Someone was there. I lashed my cowering senses to action and noiselessly approached the window. Staggering, I clutched the window ledge for support. 
The uneven light from a guttering candle secured in an empty bottle disclosed what I had, God help me, expected to see. They, one, two, three, four, five of them. They were there, the same, and yet how infinitely horrible. Lifelessly, yet with terrible relentlessness, they played at their everlasting cards. Their dank hair hung in wisps over sunken eyes. The leathery skin of their faces sagged loosely over fleshless skulls. Their clothes hung in tatters, slimed with earth and mud. And their hands. Fascinated in terror, I watched those lean, blackened claws deal the mildewed and ragged cards. Their nails, long and broken, scratched over the rough table as they clutched at the chips. They were intent on their game, unaware of my presence. But even as I gratefully assured myself of this, their eyes were on me. There was no hate, no fury, no fiendish glee in their expression. Rather, a blankness, a patient waiting. They'd ceased to play. All the waiting in the universe concentrated about me. There was a vacant place beside the dealer. When I could resist no longer, I went within. The dawn lay pallid on the hills when I flung away from the cabin. There was no sound or motion from the sixth tree as I shrank from its reaching fingers. When clear of it, I ran, ran in the madness of terror to the hotel, locked my door and fell sobbing in wrath and exhaustion on the bed. I had lost. There was no depth to the agony of my soul. We had played for no obvious stakes but only too well I knew the prize for which we fought. There would be two more nights of play with two more chances to win. I arose, bathed my scorching brow, and all day I sat, figuring, figuring. As a man of science, I had often scoffed at the thing called luck, for any game of cards must be reducible to some science or system. Night found me triumphant. Scarcely could I wait for the darkness that I might hasten to their humiliation. And that night I won. I won, I say. They were waiting for me as before. The cards were dealt, and then I proved that all things are explained by science. A man so learned can hold the world in his hand, immune from the uncertainties of chance and accident. My triumph grew as the dawn approached. I grew reckless. I chuckled. I laughed. I taunted them in their ghastly dead faces. They sat immobile, playing, playing. Their silence infuriated me. I tried to sting them to retort, but my words found answer only in the angry mutterings of the echo from the hollow room. When, as before, the candle choked and expired like a dying man and their wasted forms faded into the shadows of the cabin, I hurled the cards after them and went stumbling and laughing into the morning, drunk with my triumph. As I passed beneath the cursed tree, it dared to trail clinging, warmthless fingers across my cheek. I jerked away in loathing and derision. I still can feel the iciness of its touch. They've asked me, these curious, ignorant fools here, where I spend the nights. They talk and whisper about me in little groups that grow silent and disperse when I approach. Well, tonight is the last night, and then I shall be free and far away. If I had not been a man of science and evolved a system, then I might have known defeat and these gaping fools might have something to fill their empty brains and furnish them with silly chatter. They would find my mutilated body, clawed as though by a mountain lion, flung into a shallow grave beneath the sixth tree. But I shall not lose. When this night curdles into dawn, I shall stuff their own dirty cards down their withered throats 
and crowd them back into their filthy graves, stamping the dirt upon them until it fills their mouths and blinds their staring eyes. And the tree? I shall leave it to wring its bony hands forever in impotent chagrin. But why am I lingering here? It is time for the game to begin, and they are waiting. End of The Sixth Tree by Edith Lichty Stewart from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator? when you've got psychedelic water. Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Oh, Larry, find, find student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design. Not graphic design, graphic novels. For you, things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGPTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta 8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta 8. Yeah. Uh, you can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at... Uh, what's what's Golden Goat CBD, one of our sponsors? Yeah, you can get some Delta 8, and you can also pick up some CBD chewables gummies. They've got smokables for the Delta 8, and they've got all kinds of stuff for CBD, and they can help you out. Uh, check the show notes, Golden Goat. And while you're in the show notes, hey, do you know about Donner? 
Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos. They've got drums. They've got amplifiers. They've got guitars. They've got all kinds of stuff, and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're going to like it, and I think Donner's going to have a good deal for you. So I, I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner and check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to... Read by Dale Grothman. The Tortoiseshell Comb by Royalston Markham. Well, the ghosts of the men hung at Is-sur-Tillet have company. For myself, I wouldn't even want a photograph of the place. No, sir, not me. I can remember it without that. That's why they put me in this hospital with all these crazy people. Yet a tortoiseshell comb is as good an alibi as any. What? Ghosts? No, sir, of course not. I don't believe in them. Not on this side of the Atlantic. Whoever told you I believed in ghosts? The hospital intern? If they'd have kept me round the chateau in the woods at Is-sur-Tillet, it might have been different. It had a queer story about it, that chateau. That's what set me off. That, and the fact that I never did like Captain Bott. He was hard-boiled, that guy was. No, sir, he did not own that French chateau, although at one time he acted as though he thought he did. I'm coming to that. Over there, the frog said the original owner of the place, in his youth, had fallen madly in love with a young girl and married her. He must have been crazy about her all right, because according to their story, he often was seen combing her hair. Yes, sir, the French folks are like that. That's romance, combing her long red hair as it hung over the back of her chair, touching the floor. I particularly remember that they said her hair was long, very long, and red, like copper is red in candlelight. After a year, she died suddenly of heart disease. Killed by love itself, one of the frogs said. That's romance. And he, her husband, the owner of the chateau there in the woods at Is-sur-Tillet, left that part of the country on the very day of her funeral. The place, probably, is there yet, like it was when I saw it, late in the summer of 1918. The house was set back from the road among the trees. It looked then as though it had been deserted for a long time. Most of the furniture had been removed from it, except in one room. I'm coming to that. And the gate leading into the yard had fallen open on one rusty hinge. Glass filled the paths, and you couldn't tell the flower beds from the lawns, except by the weeds. 
Nobody had used the place, even in wartime, until our outfit was billeted at Is Sur Talay. That ghost story of the dead bride begging someone to comb her hair had kept the Frenchies off the place. But Captain Bott was a hard-boiled guy. We went into the house late one afternoon, Captain Bott and me. He led the way into the kitchen and through the first floor into a large hall, where the stairs went up to the floor above. Dust was over everything. The only room in the house that looked at all as though it had been occupied in years was that bedroom upstairs where, they had told us, the bride had slept and died. We recognized it because it was the only room in the house where the door was shut. We opened it, that is, Captain Bott did, and went in. I stood in the doorway until he swore at me and ordered me to follow him in. The room smelled moldy. It smelled dead. It was a fine room for a ghost. It was dark in there, and gradually my eyes got accustomed to the gloom enough to make out that there was a bed in it. On the captain's orders, I went to the window to open it for light, but I had to break the rusty hinges of the outside shutters before I could loosen them. At the court-martial inquiry, they wouldn't believe me when I said that was the only reason I went into the room on the captain's orders. The room was on the north side of the house, and the sun was setting, so opening the window didn't help much. There was pillows and a mattress and sheets, yellow sheets, yellow from age, on the bed. The chairs seemed all in confusion. There was another door in that room, probably leading to a closet. It was closed. Captain Bott went over and felt of the mattress and patted the pillows. The pillows on which they had said the bride's head, nestled in its mass of copper-colored hair, had rested when she died. Captain Bott was hard-boiled, like I said. He didn't believe in ghosts. He said it was the best shakedown he'd seen in weeks. I'll damn soon get a good night's rest, he said, and he ordered me to go for some candles and his stuff, and when I got back, I was to clear the place up. I went. I was glad to go, but I hated like hell to return. When I did get back into the house, it was twilight, and inside, as dark as a cat's belly. Downstairs in the kitchen, I lighted one of the candles and held it before me in one hand, the other being occupied with the captain's luggage. Then I went through the first floor into the large hall, where the stairs went up to the floor above. In the light of my candle at the landing, I saw that the door into the bedroom was closed again, as it had been the only room in the house where the door was shut when we first went up there together, the captain who didn't believe in ghosts, and I, who did, all over there. No, sir, of course not. I don't believe in them on this side of the Atlantic. But in the woods that served to Talay at night, that's different. It must be worse since they hung those men there, and with Captain Bott who thought the bed of the dead bride was a handsome billet. He was sure hard-boiled, that guy. I hated him for it. When I left him to go for the candles, that door had been open. When I returned, it was closed. I didn't like to open it again, but he was alone there in the dark in that bedroom. 
I knew that if I waited for him to come to open the door, stumbling across the chairs and things, he sure would cuss me out. That's the hell of being a private and a servant to an officer. No white man likes it. So finally, I opened the door with the hand which held the candle. Everything seemed as before, but so quiet. My ears were straining for sound like they used to do at a sudden cessation of barrage firing. But I heard nothing, nothing at all, and the place smelled moldy. It smelled dead. It was a fine room for a ghost, I thought of it then. And as I stepped across the threshold, I noticed that the other door in the room, probably that of the closet, was open. It had been closed. I thought perhaps that the captain had opened it while I was gone. It wasn't so dark when I left him as when I returned, and maybe he would have been snooping around a bit, out of curiosity, perhaps. I'm not curious like that, but Captain Bott was hard-boiled, and he didn't believe in ghosts. All these things I'm telling you about what I saw and thought and felt they wouldn't hardly listen to at the court-martial inquiry. I don't know how long it was from the time I lighted the candle in the kitchen downstairs until I stood with it in the doorway of the bedroom of the dead bride. Not very long, probably, because the melted candle grease was just beginning to run hot onto my fingers when I turned and glanced toward the bed, wondering why the captain had kept so damn quiet. It wasn't like him. And there he was, lying across the bed on his back, the tips of his shoes just touching the floor. Asleep? No. I don't know how I knew he wasn't asleep. The court-martial inquiry kept asking me that. But I saw he had something wound around his neck, something that glinted in the candlelight, like the braid of a woman's copper-red hair. And his hands were above his head. One of them clutched a tortoiseshell comb. I knew he wasn't asleep. I knew he was dead. How I knew? I can't tell you, nor any damn court-martial inquiry on earth. God knows they drove me crazy enough asking me that and what else I saw. Didn't I see nothing else? No, but I thought I heard or felt something move near the black hole where the other door opened, yawning into the closet. My candle went out. Maybe it was only the night wind from the window. I dropped it. I dropped the bundle of things belonging to Captain Bott. I crossed the threshold. I went down the stairs in the dark, running. I fell at the bottom. I remember that, and I told the court-martial inquiry so. T'was about the only thing those smug guys believe that I told them. But I was on my feet and out of the house before I knew I had fallen. Ha! I can see it. You, too, think I'm soft-boiled. So did the court-martial inquiry. That's why they sent me here, among these crazy people. But say, buddy, don't believe what the hospital intern tells you. He's crazy like the rest of them. He's as hard-boiled, too, as Captain Bott was. And that guy was so hard-boiled he didn't believe in French ghost stories. That nut you just talked with tells his story to anyone who will listen, the intern remarked casually, as we returned to the office of the Commandant of the Army and Navy Insane Asylum. Probably you think you've heard a cracking good ghost story 
but what you really heard was the confession of a crazy murderer who ought to have been the third on the gallows at is sur -Tillet. Isn't there a haunted chateau in is sur -Tillet? And didn't the officer he tells about die in the bedroom there? Oui, ma certain moi, as the frogs have it. But if the chateau isn't haunted, it ought to be. There's a story in the village of the bride's death there, and Captain Bott died there all right enough. But that thing they found twined around his neck like the braid of a woman's copper-red hair was in fact real copper. Copper wire stolen from a lineman's kit. It might have looked like hair to a crazy man. But the comb, I persisted. What about the tortoiseshell comb? That? Oh, the nut stole that too. It belonged to one of the girls in town whom the private knew before the captain beat his time with her. The End of The Tortoiseshell Comb by Royalston Markham Show notes. Check them out. That's where you're going to find sponsors and guests and T-shirts and stickers and high fives. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the show. Music is by me, D.B. Spitzer, edited and produced by me, D.B. Spitzer. The interview portions are always edited and produced by David Heath. And, hey, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. So check out pgttcm.com. And if you don't want to check out the Patreon, and if you don't want to do that, and you want to help out the show, just go to sponsors or buy T-shirts or anything like that. Anything helps. Thank you again.